Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. Amen. All right. I want to do something uh, along those same lines before we get into this. I'd like to have you all stand up and take just a second, and I want to shout out praise to God. Can we do that this morning? Let's stand up. Come on. Shout out praise to God. Lord, we bless you, God. We give you praise. We give you glory. Jesus, you are far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion and every name that is named. And you are awesome, God. You are awesome, God. Nothing is bigger than you. Nothing is better than you. You are awesome, Lord. There's nobody like you. Amen? Amen. All right, you can be seated. That's significant. Because, you know, Psalms uh, chapter 8 verse 2 says that praise establishes a stronghold against the enemy and silences our foe. That's important, isn't it? So we're going to do some more of that kind of thing here today. Um, But before I get into this, uh, I've got my, my team journey gear on to support this idea of discover the journey coming up. So... I want to just echo what what Chris was saying. If you have not been uh, through Discover the Journey, you need to get signed up for that um, so that we can get you plugged in and connected. Okay, so we are continuing in this uh, series on Ephesians today, and we're going into uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 10, and we're going to talk about some things today that are a little different. Honestly, it's a little uh, out of the ordinary for what may be like your everyday life. And I want to prepare you for that. Now, for some of you, it's not going to be different at all. But I want to try to get us all in a place of kind of common ground, a starting place today. So let me just tell you, we're going to be, I'm going to be saying words like devil, angels, demons, spiritual warfare, because those are the types of things that we're dealing with in these next uh, eight, nine verses today. So this may seem strange. It may seem like I'm reading from the script of like the next Marvel movie or some kind of Lord of the Rings story or something like that. But I want to tell you, it's not that strange. This is a reality. And When we learn to open our eyes to what the Word of God says about our real reality, about our experience here, I believe that we're able to step into the promises of God and the victory that God has for us. Does that sound good to anybody? All right, so let's get into it now. Uh, Verse 10 was where we're going to start from. Uh, Mike Plain was here a couple weeks ago. And he actually used this same text, and I'm going to use the same translation that he did in the beginning here, and then we'll jump around a little bit, uh, different translations. But let's start in verse 10 and just kind of follow along with me. Now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. 
stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this... You must wear all the armor that God provides so you're protected as you confront the slanderer. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. Put on truth as a belt to strengthen you to stand in triumph. Put on holiness as the protective armor that covers your heart. Stand on your feet alert. Then you'll be able, uh, then you'll always be ready Uh, to share the blessings of peace. In every battle, take faith as your wraparound shield, for it is able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies and take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. Amen. Now, it's been my experience in the topic of... The spiritual, the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, uh, that whole dimension that most people are either blissfully ignorant or if they have some knowledge, they don't really apply it to their everyday life. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any real meaning um, in their life. And so it doesn't, it doesn't produce an effect. And you know, Hosea 4, 6 says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. So the knowledge of these things that we're going to look at today is critically important. It might be in your situation, it might be the missing key that you've been searching for today. And so I want to encourage you to just have an open heart and be willing to hear what the Word of God is saying today. There's a quote that I love that says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And that's really true. Um, So let's evaluate where you are, okay? I have a series of questions that I want to ask, and you don't need to raise your hand or answer out loud. This is more for your own kind of self-evaluation and to, and to see if we're all kind of on the same page. So let me ask you some questions, and then you just kind of answer, uh, in, you know, silently. Number one, it seems like an obvious question, but bear with me. Number one, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Okay, probably most do. Not everybody does, though. It's a valid question. Do you believe in God? Number two, do you believe that the Bible is the written, inspired word of God? It's not just some collection of history books. Do you believe the Bible is the inspired, written word of God? Do you believe that there is a devil, like the Bible claims? And if yes, then do you believe that, there, that angels exist like the Bible claims? And if you answer yes to that, do you believe that demons exist 
like the Bible claims. And then my last question is, do you believe that the devil and demons probably don't have your best interest at heart like the Bible claims? So the reason I ask all those questions is if you answered yes to all of that, then we have a common ground. We have a starting place uh, that we can work from today. If you did not answer yes to all of those questions, then I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you today as we begin to look at this through the Word of God. So there is, listen, there is a world that our physical eyes don't see. And if you don't believe this, then you don't believe the Bible, because that's what it says. And if you do believe this, but it doesn't have any real meaning or impact in your life, and it doesn't change the way that you talk or walk or believe, then you're walking into a battle blinded and defenseless. And we have to change that. Because I believe that there are a lot of us who are going through things that we don't necessarily have to go through because God has given us the things necessary to overcome those things. So the natural came after the spiritual. The things that we see with our eyes, the natural world, it came after the spiritual. The natural actually came from the spiritual. God is a spirit. God spoke this world into existence. So the spiritual supersedes the natural. Or all political jokes aside, the spiritual trumps the natural. It does. And if you're not sure about that, you should ask the Assyrians in 2 Kings, uh, I believe it's 19. And you're like, who are the Assyrians in 2 Kings 19? Well, what happened... Uh, in this story, actually, let me just read it to you. Um, I think it's better that way. So 2 Kings 19.32, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So how does God defend the city? And that night the angel of the Lord, one angel, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the people arose early in the morning, and behold, these were all dead bodies. So one angel a spiritual soldier attacked and overcame 185,000 Assyrians, natural soldiers, that night. So there is significance. There is power. There is uh, something to the spiritual world, that, that world that we don't see with our physical eyes, that we need to be aware of. So I'm going to cover this today. Um, in three questions. But again, I really want you to, I want you to, to go forward with me in this with an open heart, open ears, and an open mind, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Um, because I really believe that there are some things in our lives that can be broken off 
if we simply follow what the Word of God says. We just got through singing that song, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And so you can have a breakthrough today, but there is no breakthrough without follow-through. And so this has to be more than just academic. This has to be more than you just sitting there listening to a teaching today. So let's let the Word of God do a work in our heart and open our eyes to some things here today. So three questions I want to ask you. Number one, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? It's important to define this. Listen, we just read through uh, Ephesians 6 and in verse 12. Now let me read this to you out of the English Standard Version. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we don't wrestle against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it's clearly identifying different classes and types and categories of the enemy. And I don't want to take any of our time today because we have a lot of ground to cover. I don't want to take any of our time today to go into all of that. We don't need to worry about that today. Uh, What I want to do, though, is identify the purpose of the enemy. So when I say the enemy, I might be talking about the devil. I might be talking about demons, evil spirits, whatever. You understand that's all in the same camp, okay? So uh, we know that the enemy does not have the same power and ability and authority that God has. The devil is not some evil equivalent of God. So if that's a a concept that you have in your mind, it's time to get rid of that right here and right now. It's not like some yin-yang, good, evil thing. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. The devil is not omnipotent. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at the same time. The devil is not omnipresent. God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. The devil is not omniscient. And so our enemy has limitations. So uh, we need to be more concerned about what is the purpose? What is the objective? What is the goal of the enemy in your life? So John 10.10 says this. You're probably familiar with it. The thief comes only to steal to kill, and to destroy. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's his goal. That's his purpose. That's his objective for your life. And the question that we have to answer once we understand their purpose, his purpose, is can he do these things? Can he, do, can he reach his objective in your life. Well, one of them, one of the, one of those three things we can kind of figure out just by simple deductive reasoning, right? Because you're sitting here today, right? So why didn't the devil just, when you got saved, why didn't the devil just kill you? Because he can't. He can't do that. If, I mean, it says clearly right there in John 10, 10, it's something he wants to do, but he can't. We're here. And, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things going on in our lives that feel like 
things are being stolen. Things are being destroyed. And there are times when it might feel like we are in a mortal conflict. And so we need to be aware of the purpose and the ability of the enemy. What is his capability? Um, What is he not capable of? You know, from a strategic or, I guess, tactical point of view, if you're going to go into battle against an enemy, there are some things you need to know. You need to know what kind of firepower do they have? What kind of defenses do they have? What kind of numbers do they have? You need to figure all these things out and have a game plan in mind before you go out and just run out into battle. And so we need to understand what the enemy is capable of and what he is not capable of. So what is his current status? What is his condition? Maybe would be a better way to ask that question. And the Bible deals with it. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's good news for us. So let's look at that. First uh, John 3.8 says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. And you're like, oh no, Jesus came to... Well, what were the works of the devil? What are the works of the devil? Ultimately, it's to separate us from God. And Jesus came to unite us with God. And so you see all through the life of Jesus during his three years of ministry that he went around destroying the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 15 says, <clears throat> talking about Jesus, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, took away his power. Colossians 2.15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then Revelations 20.10, I know some of you know this one. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's his destiny. <clears throat> so there are four D's that we need to put up on the screen that pertain to the devil and demons. They are disarmed, disabled, defeated, and doomed. That's the status, that's the condition of our enemy. Disarmed, disabled, defeated, and doomed according to what the Bible says. So the battle is already won by Jesus. Um, our role, listen to this, our role is to engage the enemy and demonstrate God's dominion and superiority over the devil in every area of life. That's our role. So we are fighting not for a place of victory, but from a place of victory. That's a big difference. We don't have to defeat the devil. He's already defeated. We just use the overwhelming superior firepower of God's weaponry and demonstrate to the world the devil's defeat. 
Do you see how different that is? Because, you know, when I grew up um, in, I guess you would call it the, the charismatic church world. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily what was always being taught, but what I, the way that I processed the teaching was that we are in a day-to-day mortal struggle with a powerful, powerful enemy. And we better be sure that we're right, and we better be sure that we're living right, because the devil is a powerful enemy, and he's ready to come in and, and, and overcome us. And I grew up with this kind of wrong mindset about the condition of the enemy and the condition of who I am. And so... As God began to reveal that to me, it completely changed the way I looked at everything. So, here's a good question, though, to ask. If that's the condition of our enemy, if he is disabled, disarmed, defeated, and doomed, then why are we even talking about this, right? Why did Paul even take time to write out verses 10 through 18 and talk about you need to put on your armor and you need to have the shield of faith and the sword. Why are we talking about this? It's because the enemy, although he is disarmed, disabled, defeated, and doomed, he does have one tactic and one strategy still at his disposal. And all of the things, all of the power and... intimidation and everything else that gets attributed to the enemy is brought back and tied into this one tactic and this one strategy. Look at John chapter 8, verse 44. Talking about the devil, it says, He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He can only do one thing, and he, he's practiced for a long time. You think about it. At the cross, at, at the empty tomb, Jesus did disarm, defeat, disable, and doom the devil. He took away all of his authority and his, and his weaponry and his, and his ability to attack in the way that he was prior to that. And so for 2,000 years, he has practiced and studied and become very proficient at deceit and telling lies. And so you have to be aware of that, and you also have to be aware of the fact that he can only come so far into your life as you give him permission. He has to have your permission. First Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Those are important words. Because the devil may not devour me. He may not. He does not have my permission. And do you know how he gets permission? Listen, this is important. It's how you respond to the roar. He walks around like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion, but he walks around as if he is. And he roars. And that roar may manifest itself in your life in different ways. Maybe you've got too much month and not enough money. 
Maybe it's a doctor's diagnosis. Maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart. Maybe it's just waking up in the middle of the night every night in fear, and you don't know why. But the way that you respond to that is what gives him permission to make an inroad into your life and begin to build a stronghold in there. Uh, And so he figures out a way by tricking you into saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things, believing the wrong things, and opening doors that you shouldn't open. But when you have a heart and a mind that is set steadfast on God, then you become impervious and invulnerable, invulnerable, yeah, to the lies of the devil. And by the way, his most common lie, his favorite lie, is always going to be about your identity. That's always going to be where he goes. That's where he likes to go. He's going to attack what God says about who you are. You may be in the Word, studying, seeking God, and you begin to understand, man, I am saved by grace. God's grace has saved me. And then he'll come along and say, I'm just a lousy sinner, barely saved by grace. And he'll say I. He won't say you because his best disguise is you. You understand what I mean? He'll say, I'm I'm just a sinner, barely saved by grace. I'm just a beggar before God. You might say, I'm a child of God. And then he might say, why would God want to love me? You might say, I'm healed. And then he might come along and say, well, I know God heals other people, but I just don't know if he's going to heal me. And so... When you begin to understand what God says about who you are, you can expect that to be attacked by the devil because that's what he loves to do. Jesus had to deal with the same thing, of course. You know this, right? Jesus had the most incredible experience of his life up to this point where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And when he came up out of the water... God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so this incredible experience happened to confirm Jesus's identity. And then he goes into the wilderness to seek God and pray and fast and Satan follows him. And what does the devil say? If you are the son of God, then turn these stone to bread, stones to bread. Cast yourself off the pinnacle. You know, all this, these things that the devil said to challenge who God said Jesus is. And how does Jesus respond? Anybody? How does Jesus respond? It is written. It is written. Jesus responds to the devil's attack with the word of God. And that is the way that we fight back. Um, you, but you, you know, you have to have God's word in your heart so that it's ready to speak. It's kind of like having a weapon that's equipped and ready to go. Second um, Corinthians 10, three through five says this, <clears throat> for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare. We do have weapons 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you see that that's what Jesus was doing in that moment? He was destroying arguments. He was taking thoughts captive. So this is what 2 Corinthians 10 is saying. Let's put that up onto the screen. We are destroying strongholds. We're destroying arguments. We're destroying lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, and we're taking thoughts captive. We're destroying a bunch of stuff and taking things captive. Sounds like warfare to me. So we have to be aware of it. When the devil says, you're just a miserable sinner, and it's a good chance that you've heard him say that because it's all through our culture. It's all through the church. You can turn on K-Love and hear songs that say that. But when you hear him speak that to your mind or to your heart, then you respond by saying, no, devil, it is written. He who knew no sin was made to be sin that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So when God looks at me, he's looking through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus. And so you're lying and I don't receive that lie. That is responding in a way that's warfare. That's warfare. So uh, what I want to do, we've talked a little bit about who the enemy is, what he's capable of, what he's not capable of, what his condition is, and how he operates. So who are you? That would be the next question. Because he attacks your identity. He tries to tell you things that are contrary to what God says about who you are. So who are you? I want to put up this picture on the screen here. Okay. So this is a cover of a magazine from the 70s. And this has significance to me. Because when I was a kid, I remember seeing this magazine, this issue of this magazine. And I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of spiritual warfare and deliverance and things going on. So it wasn't uncommon. But I was forming in my mind as a little kid a concept of who the enemy is and who we are. And when I looked at this magazine, it gave me a really screwed up idea of who the enemy is and who we are. First of all, I'm looking at that and I'm like, okay, so then the enemy is an incredibly large, powerful foe, like the size of the whole country. And the only way that we are able to subdue him, the only hope we have of coming against the enemy, is if everybody at the same time all over the country gets down on their knees and prays at the same time, and we can marshal all the faith power that we have and hopefully bind the strong man. And so my concept of us you and me is we're like ants before the enemy. We're like tiny bugs before the enemy. Kind of sounds like the, the spies that went into the promised land, right? We're like grasshoppers before their eyes. And so I carried this false concept 
of who we are forward for a little while before God finally delivered me from that way of looking at things. Okay, you can take that down. And showed me who we are. So, we need to understand that when the enemy comes and attacks our identity, we have to know what God is really saying about who we are. And so, what I want to do is I just want to go straight into the Word and pull out a few verses that say what God says about who you are. Does that sound good? Okay, first of all, God says that we are brand new. The old is gone. Okay? Now, if you have a... If you have a religious mindset and you have ingrained in your thinking some of these ideas about I have to try to be good enough to get God to love me. I don't want to get off into all of this this kind of a sidetrack here right now. But this idea of the old is gone and God has created something new is so fundamental and so foundational and so important to you understanding who you are that you can't just let this slide past you. When the, because what the devil does is he'll come and drag your past and put it in front of you and say, look at that. Look at what you did. Look at who you were. How could anybody love you? How could God love you? Why would God want to bless you? Why would God want to heal you? Look at those things you did. But the word of God says, the, the Lord says about you that those things are gone. First or 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the old is gone. It's gone. It's in the grave. Jesus didn't come to make you better. He came to make you dead and create new life in its place. And so the old is gone. God says we're his friends. God likes you. He enjoys spending time with you. He enjoys your company. Everybody say, God likes me. Everybody say, God calls me his friend. John 15, 15 says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. It gets better. God calls us his kids. And, we're, and he's our dad. Everybody say, God is my dad. It's the truth. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them right to become children of God. We are a part of God's family. I mean, that should just knock you out. It's so good. It's so incredible. But these are the types of truths that the devil wants to come and attack and undermine in your life. God says he changed our citizenship. He changed our citizenship status to heaven. And we live by the laws of his kingdom now. 
Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gets better, too, because God says he's given you the authority to represent him in this world. So not only are you a citizen of heaven, you're actually an ambassador of heaven in this world. That's the truth. That is the truth. And that is a deeper part of who you are than what your job is right now, what your title is. Because this is something eternal, spiritual, deeper. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the, ex- the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And listen to Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are God's masterpiece, created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then 2 Corinthians 5.20 is the verse that talks about how we're God's ambassadors. So look, let's put this up on the screen. To sum this up, you are made new, a friend of God, a child of God, a citizen of heaven, and God's representative. That's incredible. I mean, that's really incredible. And do you know what this makes you? And this, when you begin to understand what this really means about who you are, then the devil's strategy against your life starts to make more sense. Because do you know what this makes you? All of these things, this makes you terrifying to the devil. This makes you more than a bad dream. This is like a nightmare for the devil. If you were to understand who you really are. Because you have a lot more potential to cause him grief than he does to cause you grief. And he would rather you not know that. Because listen, think about this. Just Let's just take a couple minutes here and really think about this. It was bad for him when Jesus showed up, right? We're going to do something a little strange, and we're going to look at this situation from the perspective of the enemy, okay? It was bad when Jesus showed up. Mary gets a visit from an angel about how she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Angels show up and start talking to shepherds out on a hill about this event that's going to happen. These magicians in the east start studying the stars and see confirmation that this is about to happen. And all these things are going on. And the devil's like, what's up? What's happening? And then Jesus is born. And then even after King Herod is all stirred up by the devil and he puts to death all of the male children two years old and under, Jesus escapes and survives. And then everything gets quiet for a while. And the devil starts thinking, maybe this isn't as bad as it looked. I mean, for years and years and years, Jesus 
is just growing up. And, and as far as we know, not a lot happened. I mean, he's, he's a carpenter. He's probably building chairs and tables. It's like not too much of a threat. And then he gets baptized by John and all heaven breaks loose, right? And for three years, he goes around and he is just undoing and destroying all the stuff that the devil's been doing. And he's unstoppable. There's nothing that can be done to stop him. So everywhere he goes, every town, every village, the strongholds that the devil has built up are being torn down. And he's teaching people about their identity and about God's love. And then finally, from the devil's perspective, he gets put up on a cross and dies. And the kingdom of darkness parties for just a little bit, right? And then you know the story. The stones rolled away. Jesus is back, and he's walking around. He's doing weird stuff. He's walking through walls and teaching people. And, it's, and so, again, the devil is upset and unsettled. The Son of God is on the earth. What's he supposed to do with that? He can't do anything about it. And then Jesus leaves again. And I really don't think that the devil quite knew what to do or what to think at that point. Because he's gone. And all that's left are these followers of Jesus who all freaked out and got scared and ran off when he was arrested. And so it's like, well, these people don't seem to be a big threat. Maybe things will go back to the way they were. Now, the devil was defeated, doomed, disabled, and disarmed at the cross. But Jesus was, was gone. But then the followers of Jesus ended up in the upper room in Jerusalem as per Jesus' instructions. And after they had waited for a while, and again, you have to imagine this from the perspective of the enemy. After they had waited a while, a sound came from heaven. It sounded like an F5 tornado that came rolling down over an earthquake as the ground was shaking. And then these people that had been waiting on God had fire appear over them. And they're speaking out in different tongues. And now the Spirit of God that had been with Jesus was in every single one of them. And it started a movement that spread over the whole world. And millions and millions of people are walking around in the same power and authority as Jesus. Because remember what Jesus said, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these. And so that is you. And so that helps you understand a little bit why the devil is so set on getting you to misunderstand and not see who you are and what your purpose is. So we have to be able to understand that this authority and uh, this spirit of God has been put on us and in us. 
and uh, we have to we have to live that way. So the the third question, and this is the last question, is what are you going to do about it? So we've talked about who is our enemy, and we've talked about who we are. So what do we do? Because like I said, there's no breakthrough without follow through. What do we do? So how do we fight? You know, if this, if Paul is framing all this in the context of a battle, of a fight, how do we fight? How do you fight in a battle that's already won? When your job is to engage the enemy and demonstrate God's victory. Well, the first way that we fight is with our words. Words have power, a lot of power. So look at this, Luke chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. Now you understand, this is Jesus talking. Now you understand that I have imparted to you all my authority to trample over his kingdom. You will trample upon every demon before you and overcome every power Satan possesses. Absolutely nothing will be able to harm you as you walk in this authority. However, your real source of joy isn't merely that these spirits submit to your authority, but that your names are written in the journals of heaven and that you belong to God's kingdom. This is the true source of your authority. What he's saying is, is that your authority comes from your connection to the kingdom of heaven. And you are actually an extension of God's authority on the earth. Your authority doesn't come from yourself, obviously. Your authority comes from your connection to Jesus, to the kingdom of heaven. And the authority of the kingdom of heaven flows through you to the earth. Do you see how that works? Listen to what it says in Matthew 16, 19. Again, Jesus is saying this. I will give you the keys of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven. And to release on earth that which is released in heaven. So we exercise that authority primarily by our words. And when we speak in the authority of the word of God, the Holy Spirit comes along and backs us up with his power. So there is power and there is authority. And they work together. We work in conjunction with God. We're not doing this on our own. If we were doing this on our own, nothing that I've said this morning would apply. This is all because of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. So we fight with our words. We also fight with our rest. Yes, rest, the right kind of rest, is a spiritual Weapon. It's obviously not a natural weapon, but it is a spiritual weapon. I want you to think about this, and I'm going to read this story to you out of Mark chapter 4. But I want you to think about it in the context of rest. Listen to this. Mark chapter 4, 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. So you get the picture, right? They have headed across to go to the other side. They're, they're in the sea. It's dark. 
the wind is blowing like crazy. The, the waves are going crazy. They're filling the boat. It's a bad situation. Verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Jesus was not real worried about the storm. He was asleep. And I don't think it's just because he was a deep sleeper. I think it's because he really was not concerned. Um, But they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, when I look at that, (laughs) I don't think it appears that he was intending on getting up to do anything about that. I think the only reason that he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea is that they woke him up. Because when you are in a storm, but you know that what is inside you is greater than the storm, and that the storm does not have the power to overcome you or what's inside you or who's inside you, then you can be at a place of rest and peace even in the midst of a storm. And again, looking at this from the perspective of our enemy, it is a demoralizing, discouraging thing to bring all that you've got against somebody and then have them say, I'm not too worried about that. And it wears him out and it, it, it makes him stressed. You know, patience is a fruit of the spirit, right? Galatians 5.22. And so we have patience as a fruit of the spirit. The enemy doesn't get those things. He doesn't get fruits of the spirit. So he doesn't have patience, self-control, peace. We have those things. Sometimes your victory is instant. And sometimes your victory is a process. And in that process, when you walk in patience, you wear the enemy out. So we, we fight with our words. We fight with our rest. And we fight... This is kind of connected to the rest thing, but we fight with our indifference. And I'm not talking about indifference to people. I'm talking about our indifference to the enemy. Like I said, it's kind of connected to rest. But, you know, there's a story about a preacher and and an author in the 1800s, Smith Wigglesworth. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. But if you've ever read on his life, read any of the biographies about him, you're going to come across this story about how he woke up one night in the middle of the night to find the devil in his room. And you know how it is when you wake up and you're kind of not all there and and it's easier to kind of get freaked out about things. Well, he woke up and there's the devil in his room. And how did he respond? I bind you in the name of Jesus. I bind, you know, he didn't do anything like that. He just said, oh, it's only you. 
And he turned back over and went back to sleep. That must have been a little bit embarrassing for the devil. But our indifference to the enemy, and we don't always respond this way. Sometimes we respond with words. Sometimes we respond with rest. But sometimes we respond with indifference. Listen to Philippians 1, 27 through 28. It says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel. Listen to this. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. When you don't respond in fear, it's just a sign to the enemy of his destruction. In other words, when the devil huffs and puffs and says, I'm going to blow your house down, and you say, is that it? I'm not impressed. Then that's uh, demoralizing to the devil. In fact, um, the book of Isaiah says that, talking about Satan, it says, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? And you can have that kind of an attitude. You can have that kind of a mindset when you're not so focused on how big and bad the devil is or the enemy is, but you're focused on how awesome God is. Amen? And that leads me to the very last way that we fight. We fight with our worship. We fight with our worship. Second Chronicles 20 through uh, 21 through 22 talks about how Jehoshaphat, he chose to send the singers and the musicians out in front of the army. And as they praised God, the victory came. Now, I wouldn't necessarily do that every time unless, you know, everybody up here's, no, I'm just kidding. But no, there is something, <coughs> excuse me, there is something significant about what happens in the spiritual when we praise God. That's why we started off this message praising God. And so <coughs> let's stand up. If you have something that you have identified in your life today, as I've gotten up here and talked, and you think, you know what? I think the enemy is coming against me in this area. Then I want you to sing this next song as, as, we, as we worship. And I want you to do it in faith, knowing that your praise shuts the mouth of the enemy and breaks chains. Amen. Holy Spirit, as we worship right now, move freely. Move freely in hearts and minds. Open eyes. Break chains. Bring revelation. Set people free right now. Lord, let this moment be an intersection of your world into this world. And let chains be broken over hearts and minds right now. In the name of Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.